0: Open to Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection." knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace.
1: Father, there's no other place we'd rather be than under grace. So I pray now that we would discover the meaning of it in these days together, in these years together. I thank you for the book of Romans and for your mercy to give it to the church through the Apostle Paul and to teach us things that take our breath away, things that we can't find out any other way but by revelation and that we need to know so badly. So make us a grateful people as we stand before the Word. And I pray that I would be faithful in the way that I render it, And I ask that you would cause a welcoming heart to happen. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, because they are foolishness to him, for they are spiritually discerned. So I beg of you that you would take away the resistant side of our nature, and that You would grant the Holy Spirit to us and enable us to understand the things of the Spirit and to think clearly and to understand and to embrace what is true. So guard me from error and grant us all to be yielded and humble and submissive to Your Word. And so save the perishing and strengthen the weak and heal the sick and reconcile the estranged and build up the downcast and embolden the timid and purify the defiled and do more things in this moment than we ever dreamed in our own finite means. Draw near now and speak, O God, I pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. We move into Romans chapter 6 now, and in moving there, we are taking up an issue that is one of the biggest issues in the Christian life, which means one of the biggest issues in life, period, because the only life that will obtain and reach eternal life is the Christian life. And so what's important for the Christian life is important for life, period. What what the Bible says about the Christian life in Romans 6 and how it is the pathway that leads to eternal life is relevant for every human being. doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Atheist, Spiritualist, Agnostic, call yourself what you may... What the Bible says in Romans 6 about the Christian life is absolutely indispensable. For this reason, only one life leads to glory. The Christian life. And therefore, not to know that life and to walk on it will mean you don't have eternal life in the end. So this is huge. Romans 6 is huge. Let me show you where I'm getting this. Go to the end of the chapter and look at verse 22. Verse 22 of Romans 6 says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification or holiness. And the outcome, eternal life. So ask this question. What is eternal life the outcome of in verse 22? And the answer is, it's the outcome of holiness or sanctification or being freed from sin and enslaved to God. There is a life to be lived not just a doctrine to be believed, and not just an act of faith at the beginning to be performed. There is a life to be lived. And this life has an outcome. The outcome is eternal life. Not to live this life is not to have eternal life in the end. Therefore, what is spoken in this chapter is of relevance for everybody who wants eternal life, and that's everybody. Nobody wants to be damned. So this is big. Now where does this come from? This is a shift in the book of Romans. This is a big shift from where we've been for five chapters to where we are now in chapter 6. A shift from getting right with God by grace, through faith alone, apart from works of the law over to the living of a life which alone inherits eternal life. That's a big shift. How do we get there? What's going on? What happens between chapter 5 and chapter 6? So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and... Uh For those of you who haven't been around for a couple of years to unpack these five chapters, let me do the best I can to show you how everything he's taught up to now creates a problem that must be addressed in chapters 6 to 8. In chapters 1 to 5, it's mainly about justification by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. And this is so radical, the way Paul teaches it, that he chooses a way, at the end of those five chapters, to make it extremely radical. Namely, he brings Adam in, our original forefather, the first man from whom all human beings came. And he relates Adam to Christ as two major representatives or heads, and calls Adam the type of Christ in verse 14 of chapter 5. And then, in order to make the extremity and the radicalness of grace shine with all of its dangerous colors, he says... Now, let's just let him say it in verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. He says... As through one transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness of Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. In other words, our union with Adam brought us condemnation because of his disobedience, and our union with Christ brings us justification because of his obedience. Now what makes this an extremity of grace is that it's saying the only way any human being can get right with God as a sinner is not on the basis of any of our own deeds done in righteousness, Titus 3, 5, but only on the basis of a deed done by Jesus in righteousness, Romans five eighteen. Which means getting right with God is something that God performs for us through Jesus Christ and we participate in it by one thing alone, faith which unites us to Jesus, who is our righteousness forever. Now that's extreme grace. That's radical, dangerous, extreme grace. And he, he reaches for this parallel between Adam and Christ to show the dangerous extremity of it. And now, having made it sound as radical and extreme and dangerous as he can, he explains to us why it's dangerous. Paul is his own most rigorous critic. And he poses for us the question that his opponents have posed for him and it's found in verse 1 of chapter 6. Let's look at it. Remember now what he's just said. He has just said, you want to get right with God, sinners? We're all sinners. Yes, we want to get right with God. He says, well, there's nothing you can do by way of deeds of righteousness that will cause God to be the least impressed. So Christ came and lived a perfect righteousness for you and died a substitutionary death for you and he will be your righteousness forever. You trust that and you're accepted. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, he said, which means... That where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Which leads straight to what? Why is it dangerous to teach this? Because, let's read it. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin... So that grace may increase. See how dangerous that teaching is? That's where it's leading. Anybody who wants to can come along now. Anybody who hears Paul can come along now and say, Oh, this is cool. Acceptance of God is based on an alien righteousness outside of me. Jesus performed it. I don't perform it. I get united to that by trusting him and that magnifies his grace though I'm a sinner. Let's just keep on sinning. Just keep on sinning and grace will be magnified in my sin. Because surely forgiveness will grow and the glory of the superabundant righteousness of Jesus will be magnified as I multiply a life of sin. That's where it's leading. Isn't it? That's what Paul heard. Synagogue after synagogue after synagogue after market square after public square, whenever he preached the doctrine of justification by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, in this extreme, radical way, he heard the objections come back. And so he doesn't waste any time. He simply says, here's the problem, here's the objection. It seems to be inviting more sinning. So what's his answer to his question? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? His answer is in verse 2. May it never be. No is the answer. Shall we continue in sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? His answer is no. I say, okay, I hear you say no. Why? Why not? We're justified by grace. Grace is exalted in forgiveness and in magnifying the righteousness of Jesus over against my unrighteousness. Why not? Now, the answer that he gives here is uh, powerful. In fact, what he says takes him three chapters to say. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 is all designed to answer why he says no. No, don't go on sinning that grace may increase. Why not? Chapter 6 to 8, answer. So let me begin the answer, and we'll be here for a few years. (laughs) Because it's worthy of it. Let me begin by saying what he did not answer. When he said, may it never be, no, we are not to sin that grace may increase. And they say, well, it looks like it. He did not explain by saying, well, you misunderstood the nature of justification. He didn't say that. He didn't say, well, you... What I really meant was, it's a little bit based on your effort. He didn't fix it that way. He didn't back up and redo any of his argument and say, well, I said it was by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, chapter 3, verse 28. But really, I didn't mean apart from all your deeds. There's a little bit of deeds. You give 5% or... 10%. 10%. Or he didn't answer the problem that way. So, what did he say? What's his answer? Let's read it. We're in verse 2. Shouldn't we sin that grace may abound? Seems to be where you're going, Paul. No, may it never be. Why? Why, Paul? Explain. Come on. Explanation. How. Shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's called a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? A question that does not expect an answer. It's making a statement. So, uh, Dad, I'll give you an illustration from your, your house your kids, maybe, of a a rhetorical question. Dad says to the kid, how are you going to keep your room neat if every time you take your clothes off, you, you throw them on the floor and never hang them up, never put them in drawers? He's not looking for an answer. Like, you've got a way to do this. He's not looking for an answer. He's making a statement. If when you take your clothes off, you throw them on the floor, never hang them up, never put them in drawers, you can't keep your room neat. That's a rhetorical question. Or mom says to little child, how are you ever going to have friends if you don't act friendly? She's not looking for an answer to that question. She's making a clear statement. In fact, she's probably making a plea. You can't have friends if you don't act friendly. And that's what Paul's doing here. That's the kind of question... We have. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's not looking for an answer. He's making a statement. So let's put it in the form of a statement. You who have died to sin cannot go on living in it. That's the statement. And that's the answer to the question why can't we sin that grace may abound? Answer? Dead men don't sin. That's the answer. And it takes three chapters to explain this. So we're going to work on this for the next several years. Let me summarize it Objection, Paul, if justification is on the basis of Christ's righteousness outside of me, and not on the basis of deeds done by me in righteousness, but his righteousness and his blood, and by grace, through faith, I become a participant in that perfect righteousness, and I'm accepted on the basis of that, then let sin that grace may abound. Answer, no reason dead men don't sin. Now, I wonder if you think that's important for you to understand. I wonder if right now you're thinking mainly about the Vikings game. Or if you think this is important to understand. The reason I think it's important for you to understand is because Paul does and he's got the mind of Christ. You don't have to depend on me. Look at verse 3. Look how verse 3 begins. He makes those statements... He says, no, don't go on sinning that grace may abound. Dead men don't sin. And then he asks, and I'm going to try to put a a tone of voice in here that I wonder if he wouldn't have. Wouldn't he say, or don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Now, what's that? What does that mean? Don't you know? He's never even been to Rome. He's writing to a Roman church. Probably no apostle has ever been there. This church is probably planted by some of those folks who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost from Italy. And they took the gospel back, planted the church. It's been there 20, 30 years. And he expects them all to be baptized. And to know this. (gasps) Slaves. Children, uneducated, rich people, poor people, don't you know this? Don't you know you're dead? Can you explain that? And and as as I saw that yesterday, I thought to myself, now in a room like this, if I just took turns and said, different ones of you, just come up here and give me about a five minute exposition of what it means to be dead in Christ. And I sat down, how many takers would I get? Not many. And there welled up inside of me a sense of guilt. I'm the preacher here. I'm the teacher. If you don't know these things and you've been around for a few years, I'm the problem. Or you come from another church maybe. And you've never heard anybody address the issue of, if you're dead, you can't go on sinning. Do you understand what it means to be then So Paul anyway thinks is more important than the Vikings. Don't you know? Don't you know this? And the answer is no, we don't know it well in the evangelical church. We don't know it well at Bethlehem. So would you come back, please, for a few weeks? And let's work on this together. Let me just wrap things up quickly. I, I knew my time would be short, so I, I planned a sermon that was just kind of a big overarching summary statement of these 14 verses. And then we're going to take weeks in them to dig in in detail. So let me give you the, the big overarching summary statement. It's in three points, and I'll just state them like bullets, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. Number one, when Jesus Christ died in some profound, crucial sense, all believers died in Him. I'll show it to you. Verse 5, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ. So there's point one. When Christ died in some real crucial sense that we got to work on in the weeks to come, believers die. Point number two. When Christ rose from the dead, in a crucial sense that we'll have to figure out, believers were made alive in him. Verse four at the end. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So somehow, when he was raised from the dead, we in him, by virtue of this union created by faith, rose or received life. Newness of life. We died. In some sense, we got life. And now, third. Therefore, believers are commanded to become in practice what we are in Christ. Become in practice what we are in Christ. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a command. Consider yourselves dead and alive. Now verse 13. Do not go on presenting your members, the members of your body, as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Now notice in this last third point what he does not say. The third point, it's a little bit surprising, especially in view of verse 2 where he said, dead men don't sin. How can you who have died to sin still live in it? Answer, you can't. He does not draw the inference from that. Therefore, it is a mechanical, automatic thing. Christians are perfect. They don't sin. Automatically mechanically. Instead, the inference he draws is, therefore, reckon yourselves dead and alive. And he says, therefore, don't hand over your members to wickedness, to sin. In other words, he does not function in a way that says that this certainty of verse 2 happens mechanically. If you are dead to sin, you can't walk in it. Therefore, mechanically, automatically, nobody sins. Instead, he says, reckon yourselves to be that way and don't sin. Which is a very strange conclusion to draw. You're dead, you can't sin, so don't sin and you think why are you telling me not to sin if I can't sin? and that's the kind of questions you should be asking right now that's why he took three chapters, not three verses on this. The Christian life is a profound thing it's a profound thing the Christian life is no thin thing, no superficial thing, no little list thing it's a profound thing, it's a supernatural thing It's a thing wrought out in Jesus Christ, lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a big thing to be a Christian. And so if if you don't know about this, if you hear, don't you know, in verse 3, and you say, excuse me, no, I'm sorry. Then would you please, if you go to another church, go back and study. If you go to this church, come back and we'll study. And that's all I want to say this morning. Except this. When you leave, and I'm finished, when you leave, the ministry fair is there. Dozens of booths and tables and pamphlets all about life. A life of ministry. What are you doing with your life right now? What is your plan for the fall to count for Jesus? And I just want to make real clear as you walk out and maybe are willing to take 10 or 15 minutes to just cruise through the booths. Don't go there thinking, okay, got to do ministry here to get right with God. Got to get involved, got to be an usher or a parking lot attendant or a Sunday school teacher or nursery worker or work for pro-life or something to get right with God then you've just scratched chapters 1 to 5 of Romans right out of your Bible. That's not the point of the Booths. The Booths are all about chapter 6. The Booths are all about, how is it that justified people who are already right with God by grace, through faith, on the basis of an alien righteousness, not our own, how is it that those people live? And the Booths are part of the answer. They're part of the answer. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Father in heaven, you are here and you'll be in those booths as people talk and make connections. You'll be at home. You're over there at the dome right now. You are God. There is no square inch of this globe that you do not call yours. And so we go now in the power that you supply, that in everything you might get the glory. And I ask that you teach us what it means to live as justified people. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.